politics of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. His resources were presumed to dwarf those of the United States federal government. And his name became synonymous with wealth. J.D. Rockefeller. One day he was asked, I think by a reporter, Mr. Rockefeller, how much does it take for a person to be really satisfied? His answer was telling. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Of course, we don't really believe it. Why, if I had just a tiny fraction of the wealth of a J.D. Rockefeller or a Bill Gates, just enough to pay off my credit card or my student loan, I'd be satisfied. But would I? Would you? Would we? 1957, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan famously said, most of our people have never had it so good. Who would deny that 50 years on, most of our people have it far better? Yet, are we satisfied? Do we not still aspire to that little bit more? Or maybe a lot more? You know, the bigger house and the flashier car. Since the launch of the National Lottery in 1994, total ticket sales have amounted to £32 billion. Now, we had a big discussion among some of the elders and people what a billion is. Apparently, a billion is now agreed. We've agreed with the Americans. A billion is a thousand million. It's a lot of money, isn't it? The chances of you winning the jackpot are 1 in 13,983,816. Yet still millions pay and play, attracted by the hope that it could be you, or better still, me. We are not satisfied. And this autumn we've been exploring what it means to be conspicuous for Christ, how we can fulfil our vision, which is as a church to impact our world as a, as a distinctive <coughs> community of believers transformed by the power and message of Christ. And on Sunday evenings and in our small groups, uh, we've been using the themes from a book by Vaughan Roberts called Distinctives. For those who have wondered, uh, I wrote to him, emailed him the other day to Vaughan in Oxford and said, we're using your book and he was delighted about this and it wasn't just the royalties, he was glad that we're using his book. And we began a couple of weeks ago with what it means to have perspective in a world that lives for the moment. We then continued with service in a world that looks after number one. And if you're interested, you can download these off our website or get tapes from them. They're all now available on MP3, thanks to the great work of our team over there. Uh, you, the younger ones will understand what this means. The older folk just keep getting the tapes, all right? <laughs> and be content if you haven't got an iPod. Nano. <clears throat> And so today, this is our subject, we turn to the theme of the conspicuous Christian once more, and our theme is contentment in a world that never has enough. Contentment in a world 
that never has enough. Now, the only way in which we can become conspicuous Christians, contending in a world that never has enough, is to be transformed by the power and message of Christ. So once more, we want to look at the radical teaching of Jesus on this subject. And the best place to look in is what has been called his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which you find in Matthew's Gospel. It will help to have a Bible because I'm simply going to explain, I hope, what the Bible means and then apply it to our personal situation. Matthew 6, 19 through 34, page 971. The Pew Bibles, if you can't see one, just get someone to pass one to you. There's loads around in different places. And let's read this first of all. These are the words of Jesus, the Son of God. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not stir up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is God's word, the word of his son. Let's just bow in a moment's prayer and ask God to help us to understand it, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful words of your son which you have preserved for us so that we can read them and understand them. We need the help of your Holy Spirit to apply them to our own situations and to our own personal circumstances. You know each person here. And so we pray that you will speak to us personally and also corporately as we seek as a church to be conspicuous, to be distinctive in our witness for you in the world in which you've placed us. We ask it in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. You probably recognise the word and have seen it on motorway bridges, on the side of buses and in towns. Guranga, be happy. Well, you may not know, it's a Sanskrit word in ancient Indian language and is a slogan for the Hare Krishna movement. What you almost certainly don't know, for we're never told, is how to be happy in a world of so much misery 
and suffering. And on first sight, when we come to these words of Jesus where he keeps saying, don't worry, we can begin to think it's some similar kind of slogan about food and drink and clothing, possessions. Want to be a contented Christian in a world that never has enough? Don't worry. Or if you want to sound a bit esoteric and impress your friends, use the original Greek, Meimerimnate, don't worry. I'll say it again, just in case you want to remember it. In Greek it's Meimerimnate, don't worry. But that ignores the teaching of Jesus here, both before and after he says, don't worry. In particular, notice what he says at this bridging verse in verse 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry. For example, supposing you've got an important engagement and you're running late, so late in fact that you just missed the bus and you stood there panting at the bus stop and waving your fist at the bus driver who didn't stop for you. And I drive past in my car and wind down the window and shout, don't worry. <laughs> or even Garanga. <laughs> but supposing I stop and ask you, where are you going? And you say, I'm going up down into town. And I say, I'm going your way. I'll give you a lift. Jump in. Therefore, do not worry. So, what is it that Jesus has just said that should give us good reason not to worry like everyone else in the world does about possessions and material things? But instead to be content to Christians. Look more closely with me. I'm going to look especially at verses 19 to 24. I'll touch on the rest as well, but this is our real focus. And I want to suggest to you, there are all sorts of ways you can look at this, and I just thought this might be a helpful way to look at it. No doubt you'll tell me at the door if it wasn't or if it was. Uh, let's look at this as a spiritual checkup in verses 19 to 24, which will help us to understand whether we are prone to worry. For example, if you go to your doctor uh, suffering from stress, he or she will give you a physical checkup. Maybe discover that you aren't sleeping well or eating well. You can't concentrate on your work. Maybe you even have an ulcer. But a good doctor will, if the six minutes per patient they're allowed, ask you some questions to determine the underlying causes that have produced your symptoms. Now, the teaching of Jesus here subjects us to a spiritual examination in, one, in which, once again, we see that there are two contrasting ways to live one of which produces anxiety and worry, the other one of which will produce a contented Christian. Okay, there's three parts to this, all right? Here's the first part of the examination, what I want to call the heart test, verses 19 to 21. All of us at heart are treasure seekers. That is, we want to invest our lives, our time and our energies for a purpose. We're seeking for something fulfilling, something that will ultimately satisfy. And Jesus calls this goal treasure. And he says there are two kinds of treasure you can go for in life. You can go, says Jesus, for treasures on earth. You can store up treasures on earth. Treasures on earth, of course, are material things, wealth and possessions. And Jesus says, you're foolish if you invest all your energies in treasures on earth. Why? Well, he gives two reasons. They can be spoiled, where moth and dust destroy, uh, rust destroy, they deteriorate in value, 
or they can be stolen. He says, where thieves break in and steal. In actual fact, the original Greek says, where thieves dig through and steal. And you can understand why, because in first century Palestine, if you wanted to break in someone's house, you just got a nice shot tool and dug a hole through the mud wall to get what you wanted inside. Then, of course, our houses and banks are more secure. But maybe not as secure as we think, as witnessed by the devastating effect of hurricanes on the richest nation on earth and the depreciating value of our pensions when the stock market collapsed. I don't know if you've noticed, it's risen quite sharply since it collapsed, but they're still telling me I'm miles behind my payments. I've not quite worked that out, but some pensions person would kind of explain that to me afterwards. And even if, even if you die in your mansion with three cars and a yacht and a swimming pool in the grounds and millions in the bank, you cannot take it with you. As the minister famously said to a person at the funeral who sidled along the funeral of a very rich person, and whispered in his ear, Vicar, how much did he leave? And the vicar answered, everything, they always do. <laughs> now, if this life is all there is, and death ends everything, then you may as well set your heart on treasures on earth and live comfortably. But Jesus said on numerous occasions that after death we are ushered into eternity, which we will spend either in heaven or tragically in hell. And if this is the case, the wise person does not store up treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven, which Jesus says in contrast, are lasting and totally safe and secure. For they will never depreciate, and they can never be taken away. One of the persons who heard Jesus preach this sermon was one of his followers called Peter. Probably around 20 years later, he got the point of the sermon, I think. About 20 years later, he wrote a letter to some people from a Gentile background who had become Christians. It's in our Bible, it's called 1 Peter. And this is what he says in the opening verses, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and this is the important bit, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, you may ask, what is it that we'll inherit in heaven? What are the treasures that we lay up? Well, the Bible says they're so wonderful, you can't really express them in human language. Language. In fact, if you look at the last book of the Bible, Revelation, that tries to explain this, very interesting, it describes it mostly in negatives. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, if you've ever read that very interesting and difficult book. It says there'll be no more night there. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more tears. It even says there'll be no more sea which I think is symbolic because uh, in a week or so I'm going to be snorkeling, which is one of my favourite hobbies. But the Jews thought of the sea as being threatening and unpredictable. There'll be no more death. Instead, all that we enjoy partially here on earth, we will enjoy completely and fully if we lay up treasure in heaven. So how do you store up treasure in heaven? By investing our life, our time, our energies, our gifts, our money in the service of Christ. As we used to say, and I don't hear it said very often these days, only one life shall soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. 
But you may ask, is Jesus saying then we shouldn't bother at all about money and possessions? That you shouldn't save for a pension or provide for your family? Not at all. What he is saying here is that these things should not be our focus. They should not be our obsession. So Jesus says, examine your heart. In fact, it's singular in verse 21. The rest is plural. The heart of the matter is this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In the Bible, the heart normally refers to the whole person, but it can especially refer to the emotions. Who or what I really love? What do I desire above all else? What or who am I prepared to sacrifice all for in order to gain or win? And Jesus says, if you set your heart on material things, you will never be content, for they will never truly satisfy writing to his young colleague Timothy, the Apostle Paul, another messenger of Christ, uh, tells him to remind rich people to put the right value on their wealth. Notice he doesn't say, tell them to get rid of it all, but he says, be careful. This is what he says in 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, only if your heart is right, set on treasures in heaven, will you be a contented Christian in a world that never has enough. That's the heart test. Okay, second thing is the eye test that follows on from it. Look at verses 22 to 23. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, this picture is a little more difficult to understand. Let's try and unpack it. Jesus is saying, as it were, a person's body... As is pictured, or a person's life, is pictured as a room in a house. And the eye acts like a lamp to illuminate inside it. And Jesus says, if the lamp, if your eye is good, then you can see where you're going, you can see what you're doing. But if the lamp or the eye is bad, then you are literally in the dark, stumbling around like a blind or partially sighted person. Now, if the heart is primarily to do with the emotions and what we love, the eye is to do with the mind and what we think. You see, or maybe you don't if you're not a follower of Jesus, then his words and what I've talked about this evening may make no sense to you at all. They may seem nonsense. You say, that's just rubbish, this life is all there is, that's all we can know, eat, drink and be merry, tomorrow we die, that's the end of it. Kaput. And all this nonsense about pie in the sky by and by when you die is really just, you know. But Jesus says, if that's the way you think, you've lost direction. Your eye is bad. You're in the dark, stumbling around with no real purpose. No real understanding of why you're here on earth. You're not thinking clearly. On several occasions, Jesus described his mission in terms of helping blind people to see. In fact, there's a wonderful story in the fourth gospel, in John's gospel, 
about Jesus restoring the sight of a man who had been born blind. An amazing miracle. And at the end of it, he said to his religious critics, who thought they could see everything clearly, he said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And once you admit your blindness, once you come to faith and trust in Christ and his words, it is as, as, as it were, you receive your sight from Jesus. You begin to see clearly. And when you begin to see clearly, it affects the direction of your life so that if you've been living for material things, you suddenly say, I'm a fool. I've been living all my life this time for all these material things and they just don't last. And they've never satisfied me. What Jesus says makes sense and your life takes on a whole new meaning. Your eye is filled with light. And you have a different purpose in life. And the older versions of the Bible translated the word good as single. It talked about the single eye, which means a person who is focused clearly on what they're doing and where they're going. And you see your material goods as necessities, but nothing more. You don't stake your whole life on them because they won't last. Instead, you focus them on treasures in heaven. And the result is that you become content with what you have or what you don't have. So, let me ask you this evening, are you content with what you've got? Or are you aspiring for something else? Paul, again, wrote, we, we, we studied it earlier this year, if you were here, we've been going through, we went through the book of Philippians, a lovely letter that Paul wrote, Christians in Philippi, and we looked at the secret of contentment. This is what he said, Paul said, I've learned the secret, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need, Know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. Why? Because I can do everything through him, Christ, who gives me strength. So, here's the second test. The heart test, what do you love? The eye test, how well do you see? And the third follows on from it. This is a bit contrived, but I think you'll get the point. I think he'll also hear that what Jesus says next is the hand test. You see, verse 24, verse 25. If the heart is connected with your emotions, what you love, the eye with your mind and what you think, then the hand is connected with your will and what you do. In fact, Jesus goes even further and says that the real question is, who are you going to serve in life? Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this picture is easy to understand, but also to misunderstand if you think of it in terms of current employment legislation with trade union protection and the possibility of holding down two jobs at once. But Jesus here is not talking about 21st century employees. He is talking about first century slaves. The slave in the first century belonged to his master. He was obligated to serve him. He couldn't work for his master all day and then think, think I'll do a bit of moonlighting this evening and earn a bit of extra cash. No, he could only serve one master. And Jesus says his followers cannot serve two masters at once. You must choose, says Jesus, one way or the other. He uses an idiomatic way of speaking in his day, which can be confusing. He says you'll hate one and love the other. That doesn't literally mean hate. It means hate and love means show strong preference for one or the other. Opposite 
terms. And notice the two masters which Jesus contrasts. He says you can't serve God and money. In our Bibles they've put, I think, where is it? He's put money with a capital M. It's a good way of showing the power of money. It used to be translated by the word mammon, which is a term which means something in which you place your confidence. And how significant that Jesus again and again talks about the danger of riches and the danger of placing your reliance on material things. You see, money is a bad master. It promises so much, yet it delivers so little. It dangles satisfaction in front of us like the carrot in front of the donkey. One that he can never quite reach. And we should never underestimate the power of money. That's why Jesus spoke about it so often. And maybe this evening, you've heard the message of Jesus, but you're tempted at the same time to go for other things as well, for money. Listen, in the parable Jesus told, of the parable we call the parable of the sower, about a man who went out to sow, it's actually the parable of the soils, not the sower. The point is that the seed was sown in four different locations. And Jesus said some of it was sown among thorns. Later on, he explained to his disciples what it meant. And this is what he said about the people who were like seeds sown among the thorns. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, like you're doing this evening, however falteringly from me, hear the word, but the worries, notice the words, it's very telling, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, wealth is a liar, and the desire for other things, come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Now, I've been a pastor for well over 20 years now, and sad to say, I've seen people in church life like this. They come into church, they hear the word of God, and they say, yeah, that's wonderful, that, that, that sounds great. And for a time they seem to embrace it, and then suddenly you find they're not here anymore. And they're drifted away, and you say, well, what's wrong? Oh, they've got this job, and they just can't really manage to come to church. They need to work every hour that God gives, if they're really going to get on their feet and get their business established. But once the business is established, they'll be back. Take it from me, they rarely are. It's a sad thing. And maybe this evening you think you're one of those people. You think you can have your cake and eat it. You maybe think you can serve money six days a week and moonlight in Charlotte Chapel on Sundays. And Jesus says you can't do it. You can't serve two masters. As Bob Dylan famously sang, you've got to serve somebody. So, who are you serving? That's the hand test. You can push this analogy even further. There's a degree here of hand-eye coordination, is there not? Because if you see well, then it enables you to work well. What you see is what you do. Now, that's the spiritual examination. As we've subjected ourselves to the diagnosis of the words of Jesus. Now, notice the connection with what follows as we come to verse 25. And don't worry if you think we're going to be here all night. I'm going to go very briefly through the remaining part. Let me try and summarise it. The words of Jesus to those who are storing up treasures in heaven, not on earth, walking in the light, not in darkness, serving God, not money, to them and them alone, Jesus says, if that's the case, therefore do not worry about your life and what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear. 
you'll have the right priorities. Is not your life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? It's as though the doctor gives you a good examination and I hope this evening as we've gone through this, he's gone through the examination and he said, that's great. Your heart's right. Your eyes are good. Your hands are steady. Serving me. Therefore, you've nothing to worry about. Now, saying that does not mean you won't worry. What Jesus says is, you need not worry. And so, knowing his disciples, and thankfully knowing me and you, because we're those of little faith, as Jesus puts it in verse 30, Jesus gives these further reasons why we shouldn't worry. Verses 26 to 32. I'm not going to look at them in detail because in actual fact, they're pretty obvious. Let me summarise them again. State them simply. Jesus says, if God the Creator provides food for the birds and clothing for flowers, will not God our Father provide for his children? John Stott summarises it. If the Creator cares for his creatures, we may be even more sure that the Father will look after his children. So, if you are God's child, to worry about material things shows a lack of trust in your Heavenly Father. But what Jesus says does not assume that every person knows God as their Heavenly Father. You notice? He contrasts his followers with the rest of the society. The people he calls pagans. Literally in the original, it's Gentiles. Those who don't know God. And Jesus says, one of the distinctive marks of his followers, as opposed to the Gentiles who don't know God, is that they don't focus on material things and are beset by worry. Rather, they trust in their Heavenly Father and are content, or they should be. We're back to our theme, being conspicuous for Christ. So says Jesus, verse 31 and 2, Do not worry, saying, what should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. Now, before we come to our conclusion... We should pause and ask two questions. Okay, here's the first one. Am I a child of God? Do I know God as my Heavenly Father? Am I in an intimate, personal relationship with Him? How do you get in God's family? Well, you're not born in it. You're born in sin. You need to be born again into the family of God. And that happens when you turn from your self-centered focus and you turn in faith to Christ. And through what Jesus did when he died on the cross, we've thought about it around this table, you're able to be welcomed and forgiven into God's family. He doesn't just forgive you and say, now don't do it again and don't let me see you again. He says, I've forgiven you. Welcome, son, daughter, into my family. That's an amazing privilege. John in his gospel says, Jesus came to his own, John 1. His own people didn't receive him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Not born by physical means, but born again of the Spirit of God. But, if we claim, as many of us do here this evening, that by grace we're children of God, I want to ask you, how different are we from our neighbours and friends who don't know God as their Heavenly Father? Surely, the obsession of our society with things like food and drink and clothing and all the other material luxury, 
that our society offers in abundance, we should have a different focus. We should be marked out as different kind of people. So here's a simple test to apply as I apply it to myself and to you. What am I worried about? Maybe this evening you're sitting there and there's something you're really, really worried about. What is it that fills your mind when you think about the future? Where is your treasure in your heart? What about your thinking and your attitudes? Who are you serving in practice? Who really is your master? In very practical terms, when you face uncertainty about the future, be it food or drink or clothing or health or job, whatever, is there any difference between your response and your next door neighbour who never darkens the door of a church and has no knowledge of God whatsoever? Are you marked out as being a different person? Are you conspicuous for Christ? What are the words of Jesus this evening to someone here who's worried about such things? Do they gently chide you? They're very gentle words of Jesus. He says, why do you worry? Oh, you of little faith. Can't you trust me to provide for you? Are we living like those who don't know God? That's the challenge. Now the conclusion. Almost through. Instead of worrying about material things, Jesus tells us there is something we should be worried about. Or more accurately, not worried, but concerned about. He says there's something we should seek. Great verse, verse 33. After all this, Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom, the kingdom of your father, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Jesus says we are to pursue God's kingdom. That is to allow him to rule and reign in our lives, in every facet of our lives, in our bodies as we offer them to God as living sacrifices. Romans 12, says 1 and 2. Eyes, heart, hands, everything. The Apostle Paul even says we offer our thoughts to God to make every thought captive to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. And he says, along with that, you're to pursue righteousness. Now, the emphasis here is not so much on that right standing with God, which the word righteousness often means. That's foundation. I think that's assumed here. Rather, it is righteousness in the sense of living a life that is pleasing to God in everything we do. That should be my goal. That is what I should be worried about. As I go into this week, I want to say, I want to seek God's kingdom. Lord, rule in my life. And Lord, I desperately want to live a life that is pleasing to you, that will stand out and be different, so that people will see that I'm your follower and turn to you. And what is a personal goal? It should be a corporate goal. That's why we set this goal as our church, to impact our world as a community, a distinctive community of believers, transformed by the power of message of Christ. That is our goal, what we are to worry about. That is what we shall lay awake and dream dreams about. It is that for which we long and which we seek by proclaiming the good news of Jesus, by living as God's people. We're looking forward to that day when the earth will indeed, as the prophet said, be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're longing for that day when the kingdoms of this world, the troubled kingdoms of this world, where people blow at one another, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is the assurance we're to work towards it. And everything which is contrary to that, to the kingdom of God and his righteousness, in our lives, in our church, in our nation, 
in our world should worry us, should grieve us, should concern us. We should seek to put it right. And Jesus says, when you do that, when you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, he says, look, you can leave all the rest to me and all these things will be added to you as well. All the material concerns that you have. But it's a matter of priorities. Seeking first. It is the Lord's Prayer put into practice. Jesus taught his disciples in this same Sermon on the Mount in the previous, uh, in the first part of the chapter actually. He said, when you pray, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then and only then can we pray with assurance, give us today our daily bread with the assurance that all these things will be given to us as well. This is God's word, the challenge, the encouragement of it. Let's just pray together.